Hello and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, now part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Today's episode is a bit of a departure for me because instead of introducing someone else, I'm going to be introducing myself. (laughs) When my debut novel, Herrick's End, was released in May, I had the distinct pleasure of being interviewed by the one and only thoughtful bro, Mark Cecil, on A Mighty Blaze. Things got a little silly, so I'll apologize in advance here for all the craziness. Release day was definitely one of the top 10 days of my life, and I was pretty thrilled. So without further ado, here is my Herrick's End interview, warts and all, with the wonderful and talented, thoughtful bro himself, Mark Cecil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thoughtful Bro. I'm so excited to be doing this Thoughtful Bro today with the Mighty Blaze's very own T.M. Blanchett, or as we like to call her, Trisha. She's always been Trisha to us. Um, (laughs) Trisha, welcome to the show. This is amazing. Um, So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a little bit of introduction, and then we're going to jump in to this fantastic interview. It's such an exciting day. I'm sort of having a hard time sticking to my prepared script, but (laughs) here we go. Um, Welcome to The Thoughtful Bro, live streaming on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, Here on A Mighty Blaze, we are here every Tuesday at 2 for What Makes Great Books Tick and What Makes Great Authors Tick. Um, And just a few words before we get going, for those who may not know, um, A Mighty Blaze is an all-volunteer initiative to help writers reach readers during COVID and beyond. We're not asking for any money. It's all super, super, super free, 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 as free as it can get. Um, And if you want to just show a little love or do a little something for us, not with your wallet, but with your mouse, um, just like us, subscribe, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Um, That is the way that you show Mighty Blaze your support. And like that, we continue to bring you more and more great authors every week. If you want to find out even more about A Mighty Blaze, just go to amightyblaze.com and sign up for our newsletter. We're never going to spam you, but we will once a week on Sunday, send you a newsletter of all the interviews we have coming up on The Thoughtful Bro and our other amazing shows like Friday Frontliners and Baking with Rachel and Authors Love Bookstores and Crime Time with Hank Phillippe Ryan and so many more amazing shows. Um, If you are in the mood to spend money, please, please spend it on wonderfully inventive world-building masterclasses of YA fantasy like Herrick's End by T.M. Blanchett. This is a chance to get in on the ground floor, folks. You could, this is like seeing Dave Matthews at a bar in like 1993 in Norfolk or something. This is like, <laughs> you can say I was there when, before everybody else got on the bandwagon. Um, it's a wonderful book and we're going to spend the next 40 minutes talking about it. Um, if you want to ask Trisha a question, and I know you do, because I already see the fans pouring in to this live stream, um, please just pop them in the chat and they will make their way to Trisha. We'll make time for that at the end. Quick tease for next week on Thoughtful Bro. Um, I'm going to have this 
awesome author on named Chris Ryan. Chris wrote this totally popular, best-selling, and highly controversial book in 2010 called Sex at Dawn, which like, examines human sexual evolution. Um, and then he wrote another book called Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress, which came out recently in paperback. Um, Chris gave this like totally legendary TED Talk about um, kind of human sexual evolution and kind of the way that civilization isn't quite set up to make us happy in our relationships. So if you feel like you can't get no satisfaction and you want to rethink your love life next week on Thoughtful Bro, Chris Ryan, it's going to be a great show. Um, he, his, a recent talk he gave was how to have sex like a caveman. So if that's not a great pitch, I don't know what it is. But on to this week, um, folks, T.M. Blanchett is a former reporter, editor, and award-winning humor columnist. She founded the nonprofit organization Operation Delta Dogs, service dogs for veterans in 2013. I don't know how she does it all. Um, Trisha is part of the Blaze Mafia. She's also the producer <laughs> of the Mighty Blaze podcast. Um, her debut novel, Herrick's End, is out today. It's the first book in the Neath trilogy, and it is not your typical YA fantasy. And I can say this because I read a lot of fantasy. You know, you have your unbelievable world-class world-building in this book, which we're going to get into, but it also digs into other issues um, like about justice and domestic abuse and body image issues. Um, Kirkus called it, quote, a thoughtful and empowering hero's journey, which is, God, what I hope somebody might say about one of my books one day. Um, what a great blurb. Um, and I read a bunch of Goodreads reviews and you had so many great Goodreads reviews already. And one said, Herrick's end feels like Lewis Carroll and V.E. Schwab had a baby. Ooh, so that, isn't that good? That's okay, good Trisha, welcome to the show. It's so great to Thank have you here. Thank you. Thank you. But before we get started, I didn't want you to doubt my commitment to being a Mighty Bro guest. <laughs> a Mighty Bro. Yes. A Mighty Bro. <laughs> a bro. You are a Mighty Bro as well. So I bought brought a prop. Oh, yes. Oh my gosh, that's real. It's not even like a filter, like a stream filter. So that's fuzzy. a real thing. And for those of you God. listening on the podcast in the future, let the record show I am now wearing a giant black mustache. <laughs> like the Thoughtful Bro logo. <laughs> it's quite a look. It's yeah, quite I think all look. your guests should get these. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's beautiful. Um, <laughs> all right, thank you so much, Trish. I feel very flattered and honored. Um, so... Folks, we got to start at the beginning here with this book. Um, Trisha and I, let's turn back the clock about three years, met in Jenna Blum's master novel writing class. This class was absolutely amazing. A lot of people who were in that class are, are in the chat right now. I can see. Welcome, Kimberly, Jenna. I see a lot of you there. Um, and it, Trish, I think this was a, a fabulous class. Was it not? There was something special about it, wouldn't you say? It was life-changing. It was life-changing for sure. It I mean, sometimes you just find your tribe all of a sudden. And I think that's what we did. You know, I, I've been writing, we won't say mumble, mumble years, maybe 25, um, mostly alone, you know, at my desk or in my living room or whatever. And I was missing one key piece. And that was the really good feedback. And once yes. I got it, you know, I was just rereading, um, I made a recording of the workshop we did where we talked about the first 100 pages of Herrick's End. And I listened to it the other day and I went, oh my God, I can't believe how much changed since that point. Mm. And it was all because of the great feedback I got in that class. And that's probably why we're talking about this today and why the book was published. Yeah, there was one missing piece in your writing life. And I think 
it was this person. It was. <laughs> Jenner. Hi. Oh my gosh, how are you guys today? I'm just sitting here reading this book. Jenna, I think so many people um, who were in that class say there was something truly unique and special in the chemistry of that class. Did that, did it strike you that way, Jenna? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm busy petting my book right now, my Herrickson book, which P.S. Bostonians going to be, I'm like the person on SNL who you cannot control. Bostonian right. like doesn't ever answer the question. <laughs> Never answer the question. Bostonian's gonna be live at Belmont Books tonight with the Trisha, who might or might not be wearing sparkles, and the bro will be there too. Oh my god! And also a lot of the people behind me, um, you are in this fantastic class. That class was the first class that helped me coin what a bunch of writers should be called, a cocktail of writers. Because <laughs> when all of these people got together, there was this magic combustion slash levitation and in this in this classroom i've been teaching that class for over 20 years and this particular class like i left the classroom to go do some bio thing and came back and i could hear them all the way down the hall laughing and talking and and creating this sort of magic and that class basically became the blaze that tractor beamed them all in during the pandemic so if you guys are enjoying the blaze it's because of these plaid people behind me who are plaid because bro in the center there with his workshop and his tiger shirt <laughs> i have the tiger baby i have the tiger like all of these people their books are all going to come out and be published so we have like jane roper's book coming out next year Julie yeah. and tonight our oh, treasure ah, so good. So, so if you look so jane i mean jenna if you look just to your left you'll see the great author joe moldover who had just released his uh book every moment after but then next to him is jane roper who had a book we workshopped in your class who got a book deal. Then there's Julie Gerstenblatt who had a book we workshopped and she got a book deal. And then there's Trisha and she got a book deal. And then there's you right here live. You published a book during that year. I mean, that was like, a, and then a lot of other people have books on sub right now. So that was just like, people really thrived in that class. Yeah, that's nice. But look at this book though. <laughs> look at this book. It's sparkling in fantasy, like like Trisha's shirt and like her imagination. Yeah. So everyone was so supportive, despite the fact that my book was a little weird. It was definitely a little weird for the group. It wasn't like not the to average, me. Um, not to not, me. Not nobody else in this class was weird. I mean, I'm just <laughs> saying. <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna get back to this interview, Jenna. Wait, what? Thank you for popping on. What? Wait. <laughs> We'll see you tonight. And Mark and all these people in plaid, except we're not going to be wearing plaid. You have to show up to find out what we're Bonus, doing. Jenna and I are going to do a live dramatic reading of this book tonight at Belmont Books. 7 p.m. Be there. Yes, and Julie Gerstenblatt and maybe in France. Okay, goodbye. You take me off now. Bye, Jenna. Okay. <laughs> all right. I'm taking this very seriously. <laughs> no. I'm going to get to the real interview now, folks. Um, okay. So, um, Jenna, thank you. That was amazing. And and so on and so forth. Jenna really uh, changed a lot of people's lives, I think, with that class. Um, so, Trish, let's talk about – this is a fantasy book you said a moment ago. It was a weird book, not like a book that a lot of people had written in that class. I also um, write kind of fantasy, fable, myth. Um, so, to me, it was not weird. And to me, Frank, there was a, a breath of fresh, fresh air um, because it was just you and I were sort of the only two people in that class that were writing that kind of work. Um, and I just have to say, you know, immediately um, back then and then when I 
reread this book over the weekend, just what jumps out at me most about your work is the world building. I mean, it just seems kind of never ending the way that you're able to kind of invent new worlds. But, and so I want to ask you kind of like what Herrick's end and what the Neath is, but it may be actually like <laughs> a better place just to start would be, can you just describe for folks what this book is? Yes, it is a YA fantasy. I just call it fantasy really, but the character happens to be 19. So it gets categorized as YA. Um, and he goes looking for a missing friend. He's kind of a shy, sad kid down on his luck and he decides he's going to try to be the white knight and rescue a girl that he thought was cute in his uh, weight loss support group. So he just goes off looking for her and ends up, of course, stumbling down a rabbit hole into a dark and dangerous, uh, terrible underground world. And then he has to find a way to escape. Or does he find himself? I don't know. Or both. Or both. Inner, inner journey, outer journey, That's made it. at the end. Um, so, but what what is the Neath? I mean, um, he does go through this portal. And I remember that very first class. You might have turned in, like, the very first person in our class to turn in or close to it. Um, mm. And I remember, I remember thinking, um, you know, oh, great, here's a portal story. Like, like, Neil Gaiman writes books like this, you know, I mean. Alice in Wonderland is a story like that. Yeah. Dante's Inferno is a story like that. Um, but tell us about, he goes through this portal, Ollie, and yep. what is this world he ends up in? So it was inspired by time I spent working at a domestic violence center where we did many things. We provided resources to women and children in need. Um, but what we also did, which we didn't talk about, obviously, is we were part of an underground um, that ferries people to safety when they're in an unsafe situation. Wow. And, and, was, and hold on, Trisha, but why, and just for then, from people who might not get that, just tell us why it would be important for that to be secret. Because it's usually a domestic violence situation. So you have mm -hmm. to escape a violent partner or sometimes a parent or, you know, another person who's, who's um, putting you in a dangerous situation and they're not letting you escape. And you may have tried... Uh, restraining orders. You may have tried all kinds of things and it just doesn't work. And your last resort is that you need to escape. And there are places, there are women that help other women do that. So I worked there um, at a place like that and it was fascinating, but it was also, you know, obviously upsetting in many ways because I noticed after a while, like these women, the, the victims essentially had to give up everything mm -hmm. just to be safe. But the perpetrators gave up nothing. They just stayed where they were. They got maybe got a new victim. They stayed at their job. But the victims had to give up jobs, pets in a lot of cases, which was really sad, all kinds of things. Um, and it just sort of got my wheels spinning, you know, and that was a virtue. It, it was a metaphorical underground. And I just thought, imagine if there was an actual underground mm -hmm. and it was a different kind of underground and it all had to do with revenge and, um, what if the victims didn't have to go away, but they were able to send the perpetrators away? And what if you could do that? Is that the right thing or is that the wrong thing? And, mm -hmm. you know, obviously there's no great answer and I don't answer the question, but um, just sort of as an imaginative exercise and it sort of turned into Herrick's end. Wow. Yeah, we're going to get into all those questions about justice and revenge, which I think are sort of like at kind of the philosophical heart of this book um, a little bit later. But just for now, just to give people a taste, like I just to pick out two things that I particularly liked about this world. So one is 
the worm walkers. Can you explain what worm walkers are? <laughs> you really want me to? <laughs> yes, because it's amazing. So he um, he gets down there and he there's a blue ceiling and it's glowing and it kind of seems to move and he thinks it's just a solid thing. And then he learns it's actually millions of little glowing worm walkers. <laughs> And it gets worse. It gets grosser. <laughs> it does get grosser. But it is also like, it's like beautiful. And and there was a friend of mine in college who was a poet who made up this word. He told me one day, beautifully. It was like a combination yeah. of something that's beautiful and ugly at the same time. And that was like sort of what I felt about that. But um, I guess just one other thing quickly, like uh, Meatball. Meatball was a big, I was a fan of. Can you just tell us about Meatball? Meatball's a little, one of the many little creatures down there called trogs. Um, anyone who knows me knows I'm a big dog lover, but um, I didn't want to have like dogs down there. So I made up essentially their, their substitute for dogs in my brain, just so we could have a little buddy. <laughs> I like totally want some merch, some Herrick's and merch. And I, want, yeah, I would buy too. a little like trog stuffed animal, oh, like yeah. put on my I shoulder. I so want a trog. I know. I know. All right. Th that's to come. You know, we'll take over the world one step at a time. Um, but yeah, I mean, so Jenna Payone I see is in the in the chat here and she made this, um, here. She, I like this comment she made at the bottom. I love how Trisha has taken a timely and incredibly important issue and explored it through a fantastical story. And that was like sort of one of my big questions is like, you know, why was it, Trish, that you felt like something like domestic abuse, which is obviously, needless to say, such a pervasive and serious problem. Um, why like... For example, why not just write an essay about it, right? Um, why not write a nonfiction book or something? Why the trogs and the worm walkers and the neath? I mean, like, tell tell us why, like, you were able to kind of, like, access. That was, like, a way into these issues for you. Well, one thing I, I've learned that helps me when I'm starting a novel is I have, a, as many writers do, I have a notebook full of ideas. Like, what if there's a book about this? And what if there's a book about that? Like, just random silly things. And I find I have the best success when I take two random ideas and stick them together. Mm. And so I literally, so I had this idea going around about this weird underground, but then I had another like sort of image stuck in my head of a kid at a support group meeting. And he was really upset about something and it wasn't anything to do with the support group. It was something ex external. And what was he upset about? And it was just sort of, it wouldn't leave my brain. What is this kid? So I got him upset about this person is missing. And then I sort of started thinking about that other random idea I had in my notebook. And I said, what if I put those together? Like, what if somehow this kid ends up in that underworld and why, why would he? And then I just, all that domestic violence issue stuff was always in the back of my mind. And I said, maybe, you know, he knows someone who's in trouble, who's suffering yeah. from something like that. And he wants to help. I love that. And I will say, having like gone through so many of your Goodreads reviews, which were so glowing, um, glowing like a worm walker, one might say, um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, those are the two things that people commented on, how deeply sympathetic Ollie was as a character and his weight issues. And then um, kind of how that was juxtaposed with um, these domestic violence issues yeah. that you explored. Um, yeah, I had a friend once who said that, you know, you know, you've got a book when two of your best ideas smash together. And that seems like sort of yeah. what happened here. Um, Trisha, I want to ask you about this fantasy world, like, you know, worm walkers, meatball, all that stuff. I mean, um, where, 
does it come from? And I, and I have a feeling you're going to give me an answer that is both unsatisfying and going to make me envious. And you're just going to say, it just comes to me, Mark. But like, are there like sources of inspiration for you? Because the world is just so wildly inventive. And in fact, I've read drafts of your second book and it's the second book is easily just as inventive as the first book. And it just seems like you almost have to, you just turn on the spigot and then you turn it off and you just invent these wild, fantastical, visions. I think if you ask any writer, our writers are always writing. Like we look like we're driving a car. We look like we're showering. We look like we're washing dishes, but we're always writing. And I just get it stuck in my head. And I just like, mm. start to imagine this cave, like how could it just be grosser, like and weirder. And, and I'm also very lucky in that I remember my dreams very well. And I've even managed to do that. What is the term? Lucid dreaming Ooh. where you can, you can, be in a dream and realize you're in a dream and sort of make things happen in the dream. So I didn't know there was a word for that. I've done that a few times. Oh, yeah, cool. it's yeah, yeah. dreaming, I think. Double check me on that one. Okay. So and so if I'm able to sleep in, not woken up by a horrible alarm, but I can kind of linger there and, and remember the wacky, crazy dreamlike things and write them down. And then they sort of turn into more realistic things. But some of that, I don't know. I don't have a great answer, but some of Do you things. have like a favorite? I mean, let's just, all right, let me put it this way. I think this book, this world that you've made is totally memorable. Um, like there's parts of it like Meatball and the Worm Walkers that you just sort of can't forget after you put the book down. Um, but like, so you are a world-class world builder. Name one other book or movie or video game that has like a world that you just can't get enough of. Well, you know, I'm a big gamer. Uh-huh. Um. I think most writers would say they'd like their books to be made into a movie, but I'd like mine to be made into a video game. <laughs> so it's sort of, it reads that way, I think. There's like puzzles to solve and physical challenges and things like that. Um, and the ones that come to mind, of course, my number one favorite is The Last of Us video game. Um, if anyone plays, please get that game if you haven't already. I heard they're making a movie or a TV show or something. So I can't wait for that. Um, and then of course, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, Come on, it's just the classic. We've been yep. playing it since PS1 or PS2 or something, mm -hmm. years and years ago. Um, in terms of books and TV shows, I would have to say Deborah Harkness's Discovery of Witches, obsessed with that TV show right now. I highly recommend it. Um, and then Lev Grossman's The Magicians, of course, which some people describe as like a Harry Potter for 20-somethings because they're older people, but it's a similar situation and it's Got a little it. darker. Yeah. So I love this sort of dark, um, some people call it dark academia. That's a phrase I've just learned recently. I'm not even quite sure what that is, but something like that. I think like we are talking about that on this show. Um, oh. It was like, it was, it was the Pung Shepherd's book, uh, the cartographers, we were talking about that term, I think. Um, yeah, Trish, I, The Last of Us, I don't, I'm not a gamer at all, um, but that, I have a friend, a different friend, who also thought that was the greatest game ever. And so I'm like, let me check this out. I actually ended up watching like four or five hours of just somebody else playing that game. It was so good. It's it was, The story is phenomenal. Yeah. And then when you're playing, you get to control part of it, like how it, how it right. unfolds. And that's right. what's so fun to me about gaming. So further on that, and as it relates to your book, um, again, I saw in a review somewhere that somebody compared your book to Bioshock. Uh, which is a game that I hadn't um, heard of, but again, I'm not a gamer, but I went and watched a bunch of 
about Bioshock. And indeed, it involves a kind of underwater world that is like very dark and very mysterious. And you go on an adventure there. Um, really, really cool game. Um, and I thought it was that was a great comp for you. Um, but I guess I, I want to go back to this comment you just made about um, the way that you wish it would turn into a video game. Like what what is it about video game and narrative that you like like what what is it about video game storytelling that you try to bring into novel writing storytelling well if i'm totally honest i call myself a gamer but my husband scott is the gamer and <laughs> i am the, the backseat driver cheerleader screamer you know turn left turn left what are you doing <laughs> like, really annoying um so as someone that's not actually holding the controls, mm -hmm. it really helps when there's a good story because you're not doing the actual fighting or climbing or whatever's happening. But if there's a, a riveting story, you, you can't look away. So as the backseat player, I'm, I'm much more into the story part. <laughs> we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malqui, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. Right, but, but just tell me, I mean, like, um, so I love that. And I sometimes, you know, with my own work, I think an exercise that I like to do, and I'm sure and some people who are in Jenna's famous class would be aghast to hear this, but I sometimes feel that like, if I can't boil down the story I'm trying to tell yeah. into terms of video gamer, like a video game creator would understand, then I don't really know if I'm doing it right. Because I just feel like video games have such a strong sense of backbone. You know, you just, you sort of have to go get the thing. And like that's yeah. sort of what every video game is. You just got to get the thing. So there's no question about want or goals or whatever. It's just very clear and yeah. the obstacles are clear and so on. Um, but I just think, you know, a lot of more literary um, types of writers and I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, that that's its own thing, but um, that is not always the most popular point of view that like kind of like goals and, and drive should right. be so clear as in a video game. Well, they say in, in books, there's, plot driven and character driven. And I didn't, I didn't even know these terms until recently, but I am definitely plot driven. I'm just like, mm -hmm. what happened? I just want to keep moving. What happened? Like characters I'm interested in, but I'm much more interested in what happens to them and why, and what's the weirdness and the twist and all that kind of stuff. So I like action movies, I like yeah. video games. I like things that move quick. Um, I just, maybe it's my 
I don't have the patience for more literary fiction. I don't know, but I just like things to move. And I've apologized for that my whole life. And I've pretended to be something else. And I, I've written other types of books because I thought that's what people wanted. But I finally, in my older age, um, I'm just writing what I love. And it's just fun for me. And it turned out that was the one that caught, you know, caught fire. So. Oh, my God, Tricia. I hear the, a version of that story from debut authors so often. It is like, you know, it just seems like such a common thing. Like, I wanted to write books like that were in The New Yorker or award-winning fiction. And I did that for so long, MFA fiction. And then one day I was just like, F it. I'm just going to write something that makes me happy. And then the next thing you know, they have an agent and a book deal. You know, it's like, what is that about? Yeah, you can't predict what other people want. I you will laugh at this. I used to write spy novels. Literally. I was obsessed with Jason Bourne long before the movies came out. I was obsessed with those novels. I said, oh, that's, I'm going to do that. <laughs> the suburban girl who doesn't know anything about spying. I'm going to write spy novels. And shockingly, they did not, they were not successful. <laughs> so. but, but, but I mean, that doesn't seem so strange to me. I mean, that's, I mean, it's very action oriented, you know, and you're kind of yeah. like, gotta go into that. You got to sneak into this other world or whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, so I actually just want to get back to the title of the book here for a second, mm. um, Herrick's End. So people might not know who Herrick is, but interesting fact, um, George Herrick was a real person and he was in, he, there's a character in Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. George Herrick is in that. I just found that out today. So it's you know one of the great plays in American history. It's about yeah. the Salem witch trials. And uh, yeah, Herrick is in that play. And now... Here he appears again in another great work of literature, Herrick's End. So tell us about the, who this guy is and why your book is named after him. I had never heard of Herrick, obviously. He's a very, very minor character, but I actually grabbed this book here. This is The Witches by Stacey Schiff, the Bible for anyone who's interested. It's nonfiction. It has everything to do with the early history of witchcraft in America. And that's not just Salem. It's all over the place. Absolutely fascinating, but very, very dense. So at the beginning, she very helpfully has a cast of characters and it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names. And I was just going through it. After I read the whole book, I went back to look at the cast of characters again. And I saw this little line that caught my attention. Herrick George, well-born, handsome Salem deputy sheriff in his 30s, an upholsterer by trade, spends 1692 rounding up and transporting witches. And that was the end. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it's just so strange. So then I tried to research him. And there's obviously very little known about him. But one thing that fascinated me about him is when it was all over, all these people had died, these horrible deaths. He went to the local court of the Salem Village Courthouse, whatever they called it, and complained. And he submitted a petition. And he said, look, you didn't tell me there was going to be all this witch trial stuff. I want more money. And they said, no, you, you did your job. You're done. You got, you got your money. And, and he basically, he turned it all on him. Like he had the hardship in these witch trials. Uh, he worked overtime. He, he, worked he was working overtime. weekends, burning witches. So exactly. It was all about him. He, it was, it was astonishing. You can read the actual petition that he submitted. And I just went, Oh my God, that's too much. That's too fascinating for me. Like I need to go, I need to take this and run. So he became embroiled in the whole underground of the Neath. Yeah. I mean, he's sort of, I mean, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but like the way he's sort of positioned, you don't say this in the in the book, but in so many words, but he's sort of like the kind of patron saint of domestic abusers in a way in your book, right? Yeah. He's like the reason this underworld exists. He's like the OG SOB in a way, right? Yeah, he's he was sort of the epitome of that just doing my job mentality, mm. like the Nazi guards right. and other people. And when it's all over, they say, hey, I was just doing my job. Yeah. And, and you can apply that to almost any negative situation. And, and it's something people say to excuse themselves. Um, and that just fascinates me, that level of these secondary characters. Like the whole thing couldn't have happened without the support of all these secondary people who could have stood up and done something and didn't. Mm. So that certainly echoes down to uh, what's going on in our country right now, I think in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, so one connection that um, sort of I, I made on the second reading of it was, um, and I mean, it's just sort of like right in front of my face. I should have realized this right away, but just the connection between Herrick and witchcraft and domestic abuse, right? I mean, it's like, so, and I mean, the way the book is sort of like suggesting that like the, the witch trials were sort of like the ultimate form of domestic abuse and like certainly like a kindred kind of terrible thing. Um, and I guess I just wanted to ask you about that. Like what, um, just kind of weave that, you were saying a moment ago, it's about kind of the banality of evil and like, you know, the foot soldiers who just kind of are like, well, this is just how it is, but yeah. I mean, square that circle for me, like connect these two things, all your work in the domestic abuse shelter and then which Salem witch trials. Um, I watched something about a documentary about witchcraft and witch trials and things like that. And throughout history and Europe and everywhere. And she made this point that I thought was so fascinating, which is throughout history, as soon as a woman becomes either powerful or difficult, all of a sudden you hear suspicions of witchcraft. Oof. And it, it was a way for small villages. Now you think of a small group of people mm -hmm. and there's one person in there who's really difficult maybe, or is causing you some trouble. Pretty easy to just say, Hey, I heard she's a witch. Or whatever. And it was just a way for people to dismiss. Um, and not just women too. It's been lots of men. So, mm -hmm. but it, it's a way to knock women down from a peg that they may have gotten a little too powerful in the village and people don't like it. And that's just how it's been used. And then obviously in the, in the home, domestic violence is more in a, in a home situation, but that also happens in a societal situation. Right. Um, one of the biggest issues in this book and something that like I keyed in on immediately, uh, you know, when I was reading early versions of this book is just this idea of infinite revenge, right? And like, sort of what is justice? I mean, I think this is sort of a big problem that your book brings up. I mean, because you have these victims who sort of have no recourse, and this is something that you saw in the real world. Uh, and it's so profoundly unfair, um, the lack of justice that you saw. Um, and then you've invented this world where getting this kind of revenge or like the victim's idea of justice is something that is like not only available, but just can be had kind of ad nauseum. I mean, as much justice as you want. And I think it's like a really uh, kind of compelling and important idea. And I I'm just wondering like kind of where do you come down on that? What are your thoughts about you know, what is real justice and can there be kind of too much justice ever or is it a healthy thing? 
the real question for me is like, what is the dis difference between justice and revenge? Mm. Those are like two very different things that I think we mix, including me, we mix up in our heads. Like what is justice and what is revenge? And just because you can have revenge, should you take it? And that's sort of, we examine that more in book two. And then in book three, we'll learn where Ollie comes down and um, perhaps what the key is, what he thinks the key is to breaking the cycle of violence because mm -hmm. the cycle of violence, it just goes around and around and around, parents and children and back again. Um, so he does a lot of thinking about that in the next two books. Um, and I just sort of explore it in my own brain because I don't claim to have an answer but um, I obviously had to come up with one for Ollie. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. he has his answer. Yeah, but I could see, I mean, just before we move on, I just want to say like, I mean, just the, you know, your empathy and sort of like what the pain that you must have felt on behalf of these people you worked with oh, yeah. must have been like so profound because you can see in like the dark corners of the Neath, um, like the revenge that is taken. I mean, like that's sort of, a mirror image of, of all this pain that you must have witnessed. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, Oh, imagine if she could do this and she wouldn't have to do that. And mm. I am so fortunate in my life that I did not suffer abuse like this. So I just, I can't even imagine. I just try to wrap my brain around like what you would do in that situation. And um, yeah, I would imagine scenarios for these people that <laughs> in my own imagination. And then it sort of just became the story because what do they call it? Revenge, revenge fantasies, you know? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We all have revenge fantasies. That's sort of yeah. what this whole book is, I guess. Right. I mean, and it's, it's sort of like it brought, I remember early on just talking about Dante's Inferno because it, it is a vision of hell in some way. And it's a way that like the sins of the world above are just sort of like you, you, there's payback um, and payback in a way that you can't even imagine down there. So anyway, um, again, just to kind of like go back to the, my thoughts at the top, but just, for a YA book, just some real deep probing s stuff here. And I'm not trying to say YA books aren't normally sophisticated. Everybody knows they are. But um, I don't know if I've seen like these issues explored as frequently in YA. Right. Here's hoping it's welcomed by yeah. <laughs> the librarians and the gatekeepers, so to speak, of, of these things. I hope they like the discussion of the issues and yeah. don't want to suppress the discussion of the issues. You know? Well, judging from the Goodreads reviews, people have an appetite for this. And and in speaking of the Goodreads review, I want to ask you something else, which is that you're writing a trilogy, mm -hmm. and like, are, are you? Is it is it weird to like see reviews of a book that you're of a story that is like still? I mean, in a way, in some sense, you've only written the first act of a three act story, and now you're getting all this feedback from right. the market about your three act story, and you're sort of in the middle of. I think finishing up the second act. Um, yeah. but does that, how do you deal with that feedback? Well, it was a little shocking. I'd never gotten this level of feedback before, like, except from you guys in workshop. And that was all super friendly. So I was like, people have opinions <laughs> and I have to hear them. So I would read them and some of them were great. I'd say most of them were great and nice and helpful. Um, some of them were not. <laughs> and you're just like, Oh, wow. Okay. You didn't like it. Um, but I had to stop reading any of them even the good ones, because I found it gave me total writer's block because I found myself, I'd sit down and look at an empty page and I would just suddenly be worrying about what are people going to say about this? What are they thinking? Mm -hmm. And someone will say, oh, I hope book two has blah, blah in it. And I'm like, uh-oh, 
book two does not have that in it. Is this person going to be really upset? And <laughs> so I have to just like go back to that world, immerse myself in that world and try to just forget that anyone is actually going to be reading this. Otherwise I get total writer's block. Yeah, I got that. Um, so look, folks, I am going to ask one more question from Trisha and then we're going to go to some audience questions. So please, if you have questions for Trisha, pop them in the chat. We'd love to answer them. Um, Trisha, one thing that like people, even your close friends might not know about you, but which I do, is that you are, no. an, you are an incredible editor. Um, like, and I, I just want to say like no shade on anybody who's ever edited my work or given me feedback, but like, I honestly think you are the best editorial I have ever had on my work. Um, I mean, just yeah, kind you. of, oh, no, but you've heard me say that too privately before, but, um, you know, not only kind of like for what stories need, um, and like kind of on a big developmental kind of edit, but like. I think even better on the line level, um, you know, just there's like nothing that escapes your eye. And so clearly like that is another gift you have. And we can see it when you turn in pages or you're like, oh, this is my first draft. I don't know if it's any good. And it like reads like a published book because there's not like a single comma that's out of place. But I guess so, to put this all into a question, I guess what I'd say to you is I know that you've, I mean, you've looked at my work. I know you looked at other people's work. Um, what would you say as an editor, of other people's work is like a kind of advice that you find yourself often giving. Like what, what is like often missing that you, that you find? Um, first draft is not what you show people. Um, I, I was very fortunate cause I was a journalist and we had very short timelines. So mm -hmm. I got to, you know, they say we need eight inches on such and such a topic and I need it in two hours. And inches, like, right. Uh-oh, yeah, because everything's in page inches. Mm -hmm. So I got to be very, very quick. And then I wrote a column, which wasn't that long, but it was a weekly. It had to be funny. It had to be every week. It had, you know, no matter what the weather or what was going on in your life, it got turned in. So I think that's why I just learned to spot typos quickly and do things quickly because any journalist will tell you that's just what you do. That's just how you go about your day. Um, and then when I applied it to fiction, it just sort of went through. Um, but I would say your first thought is never the best thought. Your first draft is never your best draft. So if you're coming up with uh, what's going to be on the ceiling, you know, whatever you think of first, that's not your best thought. Mm. Scratch that. Keep thinking. Um, and more things will come to you, especially if you need it to be sort of strange or imaginative, or even if it's like a character name or what they look like or, or what, how the story's going to go. And I learned that the hard way in workshop because I gave you guys an outline of the story and you're like, eh, how about if this happens? And I'm like, oh, that's a better idea. So, you know, that's the other big one is get people around you who will be honest and, mm. but nicely honest, like not mm. cruel, not mean. I've heard stories from MFA programs and things where people are just cruel yeah. um, and just listen, listen, listen to the advice and take it and be willing to make some changes. Great. Okay. Well, and I just, one further thought on that is just like, I think that's one of the great things about Jenna's class, which is just so unique. And I think you and I have both sort of had been looking around for a great tribe. And then we got to Jenna's class and it was like Insta tribe. But I think like part of it is the tone that is set and it's like, yeah. You know, 
there's a lot of good feedback that you could get, but if it's sort of like delivered in a nasty way or a way yeah. that you feel like is undercutting or is delivered with an agenda or an ax to grind, it can just be totally lost and do more harm than good. But when you get like the right atmosphere in a crit group, it's just sort of invaluable and you sort of listen to anything because going through crit sessions is like going through an open heart surgery. <laughs> Except more painful. <laughs> more pain, right. Yeah. Uh, worse. Okay. You're welcome. Bye. <laughs> Oh my God. I knew we wouldn't be able to keep her out of there. Um, all right. We're going to go over to audience questions. I know we have a bunch, so let's get to it. Please pop the questions on screen. This is from the great Kimberly, host of Authors Love Bookstores, um, a wonderful, wonderful show on Wednesdays at four. Um, Trisha has worked so hard to bring Herrick's End to the world. How is she feeling today? Excited, nervous, thrilled? What is it, Trisha? Um. It's excited, but also terrified. It's a, an equal mix of the two because now people are going to actually see it and have opinions on it. People I know and this world and these characters that have been living in my head for five years are suddenly other people are going to learn about them and maybe think I'm insane. That's, that's a possibility. <laughs> or really love Ollie and mm -hmm. deeply cherish Ollie and Ollie's journey, which is what I see in the reviews. Um, so I think you're in for a treat. Um, so if you dip into those reviews, all right, let's go. What else do we have here for questions? Uh, this is from the audi uh, audience queue. What does your dog Ryder think of Herrick's end? And can we ask him ourselves? Oh, my God. No. Ryder is locked out of this room because he would be jumping <laughs> up here and knocking over my water and drooling all over everything. So he's not in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, Trisha, actually, you know, on the note of dogs, I mean, um, do you want to just take a minute and talk to people about uh, Delta Dog? I mean, it's just such an amazing organization. Oh, I would love to. Any chance for a plug? <laughs> um, Operation Delta Dog is a nonprofit that I founded in 2013. So we're coming up on 10 years. Um, and what we do is we rescue shelter dogs and train them to work as service dogs for disabled veterans who suffer from the so-called invisible disabilities of brain injury and PTSD and related mm. conditions. So it's a win-win because we like to say the dogs get the homes they need and the veterans get the help they deserve. And you can learn more at OperationDeltaDog.org. And how many dogs have you placed at this point? More than 55 at this point. Wow. With 55 veterans. Yeah. What a beautiful story. Yeah. That is so great. Um, all right. Let's see what else we got from the audience. Um, more audience No questions. rider. Sorry. No rider. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, from Jenna Payone. Um, Trisha, do you ever struggle emotionally with writing about the dark and twisty aspects of your story? And if so, how do you push through and take care of yourself so you can? Thanks, Jenna. Great question. Never. No, sorry. I, I think I'm darker than what I appear to be because <laughs> I love that stuff. <laughs> the darker, the better. Witches, vampires, zombies, whatever. Bring it on. I have no problem. I, I actually struggle. I try to make it lighter. So it's mm. not, not too dark. So. I mean, just kind of analyzing yourself a little bit. Why do you think that is? Why are you so drawn to that, do you think? I don't know. I, I think maybe as a, hate to say it, as a female in America growing up when I did, and you're expected to be helpful and cheerful and nice and sweet. And, you know, I do all those things. But I think we all have different sides to us that 
just get suppressed by society. So maybe mine is just a little more evil and <laughs> revengeful or something. Oh my gosh. The founder of Delta Dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Tr truly evil, evil deep down. Um, all right. I don't believe that for a second. Um, okay. Let's um, get some more questions up there. We had a couple more, I think. From Joe Moldover, Trisha. What gave you the idea to open the story with your protagonist in a weight loss group struggling with food and eating? Well, I knew my image of him was he was in a support group of some kind, and I really didn't know specifically what that was. But then when I got the idea to set it in the North End, I thought, what is the worst struggle you can have while living in the North End of Boston? And that is a struggle with food because the North End is all about food. So my character lives completely surrounded by pastry shops, Italian restaurants, you name it. There's literally almost a hundred of them. And, and he struggles with wanting to lose weight. So I just thought that was a juxtaposition. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, give up. So that's why he ended up with that. <laughs> Great. All right. Let's do one more question for the audience and then we'll wrap. Uh, Rachel Levy-Lesser, um, can you tell us more about the other books in the trilogy? Book two is called Herrick's Lie, and that comes out March, next March, so less than a year. Book three is called Herrick's Key, and I think that will come out the following year. And it's all been outlined, so, but we'll see after I show it to Mark, because he's the outline king, so he <laughs> may have better suggestions. I look forward to that, I'm sure. <laughs> um, all right, so Trisha, this has been so great, folks. The book is Herrick's End. It's totally fabulous. Don't take it from me. Just go on Goodreads and literally point your finger anywhere on the page at any review and you'll see how many and how great the reviews are so far. Um, Trisha, this has been so fabulous and it's so gratifying for me and all of us, including Jenna, to see you have come this far with your mustache. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Mark. You got well, hey, I still got to ask my last question. Um, so Trisha, you know this is my question that I ask everybody, and I want to hear you say it. I want to hear you answer it. Jenna, please stop distracting her. She's got to focus. This is important. Um Trisha, just imagine an ideal reader for this book, someone who is just, you know, getting everything that you want them to get, and they are just um, kind of responding in the way, the ideal way, the way that you hoped in your wildest dreams a reader would respond mm -hmm. to this work. When they get to the end of the book, they close it, and it's sitting there on their lap. Describe for me in a word or phrase, what is the feeling that this ideal reader has at the end of Herrick's End? Um, exhausted. I would love for them to be exhausted and um, thinking about how to maybe change some of these issues for the better. Perfect. I love it. Trisha, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining. You guys were so active. It was so wonderful. Jenna, thank you for all the work you do at Grub and for you know helping sort of birth this, this book baby. I'm so proud of this book baby. Everybody <laughs> should buy at least 50 copies from the link in the chat and get wow. it to everybody you know and love, at least 50, okay? We're watching you. <laughs> Congratulations, we love you. Thank you, thank you everybody. Right, thanks everybody. And hopefully we will see you tonight at Belmont Books at 7 p.m. for Trisha's official in-person launch. It's gonna be so exciting. Um, we hope to see you there. And then also to see you next week with Chris Ryan and Sex at Dawn on The Thoughtful Bro.
Thanks for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My handle is TM Blanchett on Bookstagram, BookTok, Facebook, and Book Twitter, and I'd love to see you there. Tune in next week for an episode featuring Lydia Conklin. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. <laughs>